0: Um, Our final speaker of the weekend is a man who, um, for me, is one of the most impassioned, urgent, necessary voices in uh, contemporary medicine. Uh, I'm a great admirer of his. He's the editor-in-chief at The Lancet, uh, the wonderful Richard Horton. Thank you very much indeed, Sam. It's been quite a weekend, and uh, difficult to be the person speaking uh, now at the the, uh, emerging close of that weekend. A very kind person, and I really mean this, a very kind person said to me yesterday as we were making our introductions, Ah, so your job is to sum up the whole two days. And I must say that uh, the, uh, I've been looking forward to this weekend for several months, and in an instant, in an instant, I fell into a pit of fear, uh, because that is not how I saw the next uh, 25 or 30 minutes. Sam is a lovely guy. Um, and one of the lovely, most disarming things about Sam is the fact that he is engagingly vague about what he wants from you when you, when you come here. Um, for, for many weeks, he was sending me text messages and emails desperately wanting to speak to me about what we were going to do on stage today. So I expected a long list of requests and desires and instructions about what was needed. Eventually, I got through to him in his clinic here in Cheltenham, and I said, Sam, hi, it's Richard. Uh, So, what's the plan? And he said, what do you mean, what's the plan? I just want you to speak for 30 minutes about whatever you want. So I said, what what do you mean? You just want me to speak about the planet, you know? And then he put the phone down. (laughs) Now, I also feel rather anxious about coming now because we've had the most exceptional speakers talking with, perhaps there is a a connection between them, a pessimistic lilt, let me put it that way. from Lara to Lawrence, Um, Kate, who was talking about migration as being perhaps the the holocaust we will look back on in years to come, Danny uh, Dawling, reflecting on the stalling life expectancy. But from where I sit, I'm sorry, I've got to be a little bit optimistic, because from where I sit, I try and survey the medical literature, And when I look at the medical literature, there's a beautiful story being told. And that beautiful story is that there's never been a moment in the human history that we've been able to catalog where health has been getting progressively better and better and better as a global average. Over the last 20 years, we've managed to halve child mortality across the entire planet. We're seeing maternal mortality drop in many places, precipitately. We've pretty much conquered, apart from the occasional outbreak of Ebola, MERS, SARS, and so on and so forth, communicable disease. There's only one communicable disease now in the world that is going up 40,000 more cases last year compared with the year before, and that was dengue, which is an interesting, interesting, I might mention later, when we come to talk about some of our environmental concerns, and even chronic diseases, heart disease, cancer, and so on, which we think is getting a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger problem, and it is because we've got more people on the planet, but actually, the rates of mortality from those diseases are falling. So this is a good news story. In fact, it's such a good news story that a group of health experts and economists, a few years ago, got together and made this statement, that for the first time in human history, we can contemplate the end of preventable mortality within a single human generation. That's incredible. And that kind of sentiment led Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg earlier this year to launch the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, with the goal, with the goal, what a crazy goal, to cure all human disease by the end of this century. That's pretty optimistic. It was John Rawls, the political philosopher, who actually talked about the idea of a realistic utopia. And he was optimistic about the idea of a realistic utopia because he saw, and of course there are setbacks, and missteps, and wrong turns, but he saw a persistent inclination in our species towards an acceptance of the pluralistic nature of our world and our societies, an incremental inching towards more democratic decision-making, a belief in public reason, and a desire, not always fulfilled, as David showed us earlier, but a desire to live in peace. But now let's step back in history. And I want to take you on a journey. We're in Central America, in a country now called Belize and we are at the entrance to a cave. We walk 50 meters into that cave, and we come across a 56-centimeter stalagmite. We excise the stalagmite, and we take it back to our laboratory. We then bore tiny little holes into that stalagmite at 0.1 of a millimeter separation. 4,200 holes. We then extract the contents from each of those holes, and we measure an isotope of oxygen. And that isotope of oxygen gives us an indication of the rainfall that's taken place over two millennia. And in that study, we discover the reasons for the rise and the fall of one of the greatest civilizations in the history of the world, the Mayan civilization. The Mayan civilization began about 1000 BCE, and over the course of the next 1500 years, there were resplendent rains over their land. And those rains led to the flourishing of a civilization that created great scientific and artistic achievements. Cities grew, people spread across the land, agriculture thrived, people were, as far as we can tell, incredibly happy. But around 660, in the Common Era, something changed. That change was, it stopped raining the Mayan civilization went through a persistent, drying period that lasted until 1100 CE. And during that time, during that 400 years, it all fell apart. As the rains stopped falling, agriculture stalled. As agriculture stalled, different political centers started to be rivals with one another. One center fused with another center. Then, competition became conflict. Those rivalries led to fracture, fragmentation, disintegration of the Mayan civilization, and eventually collapse in 11, around 1100 CE. Here we are. It feels pretty solid, as it did in 660 C.E. in the Mayan Civilization. But civilizations come, and civilizations go, and our museums are testament to that fact. I've been sitting in the back for two days, looking at the bricks. We could describe this theater in terms of the bricks around us, and it would be entirely appropriate to do so. Their size, their shape, their color, their morphology, their density, whether they're chipped or not chipped. We could describe every single one, and all the bricks in Cheltenham. But that doesn't actually tell us about what Cheltenham is. Yes, there is a truth to the fact that all these individual elements make up this city, but the city is more than simply the sum of the individual bricks that make it up. And so with our our civilizations. The idea of health as being something that we embody in ourselves, or even in our communities, is of course true, and we are taught it. But perhaps there is also a health of our civilizations. We heard this from Lawrence in the nation of the health of the state. So how healthy is our civilization? This is a reason why when the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, just a few months ago, made the comment that it is a more dangerous world that we live in, we should reflect on the fragility of our civilization. Who is to say, that in 400 years' time, people won't be parading through some museum pointing out the relics, the artifacts of our civilization because of the mistakes that we have made, however much, in good faith, we make them. Now, of course, we have a solution to this, the optimistic bit again. And the solution that we have created, which is, in fact, the solution that all Nations on the planet, 194 countries of the world, have devised the Sustainable Development Goals. That is our realistic utopia. Now, I don't want to test you on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, but if we went through them, you can see how broad this agenda for achieving a utopia by 2030 really is. We are going to end poverty. We are going to eradicate hunger. We're going to ensure healthy lives for every single person on this planet. We're going to give education to everybody. We're going to achieve gender equity and we're going to make sure everybody has access to safe water and safe sanitation. And we're going to go even further than that. We're going to make sure that everybody has universal access to reliable and renewable supplies of energy we're going to deliver every we're going to deliver economic growth to every society on the planet we're going to have an industrial revolution in all 194 countries of the world we're going to eradicate inequality we're going to have safe and sustainable cities we're going to control consumption and limit production to sustainable levels We're going to solve climate change. We're going to protect our oceans. We're going to protect our terrestrial ecosystems. We're going to deliver peace, justice, and the rule of law for every citizen on this earth. And we're going to create unprecedented cooperation and partnerships among us. Those are the 17 goals that your country And my country and 193 other countries have signed up to. So we better get on with it. (laughs) Because we've only got a few years left to achieve it. But, this is why I get worried a scientist who's not a maverick, Martin Rees, former president of the Royal Society, astronomer royal still wrote in a book about a decade ago a startling statement. And that statement was that we only have a 50-50 chance of surviving as a civilization until the end of this century. A 50-50 chance of surviving. Johan Rockström, who leads the Stockholm Resilience Center, puts it a slightly different way. He's shown that our species lives in a very, very tiny, safe operating space, as he calls it. And that safe operating space for humanity is surrounded by threats. So imagine we're in this little space with a little fence around us, with these threats imposing themselves on us. Climate ozone, chemical pollution, air pollution, biodiversity, and so on. And as these threats get closer and penetrate this boundary around our safe operating space, we can't go back. We can't just recreate the world. It's not a reversible process. And so we have to identify these threats, and make sure that we act and change our behavior in order to push those threats away. Are we doing so? Well, This, of course, is the reason why we now say that we live in a very different era. I don't know how many of you have taken your children to see Ice Age, one, two, three, however many Ice Age movies are, there are, but the Ice Age movies were set somewhere between 2.5 million and 11,700 years ago, the Pleistocene era. But for the last 11,700 years, we've been living in our era, which is the Holocene, except that there is now a debate which is coming to a conclusion that we are going to move into a completely new era of geological time, the Anthropocene, the era in which not all human activity, but where groups of our populations are behaving in such a way as to reshape the trajectory, the velocity of change in our world. And we can perhaps pin a date on when that change was. And the closest that we can perhaps come to is July the 16th, 1945, Trinity. In the desert in New Mexico, the first atomic bomb was exploded. And the reason why that is being thought of as the moment for the beginning of the Anthropocene is because when all of this radioactive material was put up as a plume into our sky, and then it settled, that was a new stratum in geological time. So that's the new epoch that we are living in. And indeed, not only is that the new epoch, but the way it's described is the great acceleration. Because the growth in just the sheer stuff of concrete and plastic and carbon dioxide and black carbon that we are producing isn't just going up in a straight line, It's going up in a very, very steep, upward incline. If we think about the effects that this is having on our future, there is reason to be pessimistic. We're only beginning now to understand what those impacts might be. Take the continent, whatever the vote, that we're still a part of. By the end of this century, another 350 million people in Europe will be at risk of extreme weather events, leading, it is estimated, to about another 150,000 deaths across the continent. But if we look worldwide, we can expect to have as many as 2 billion climate refugees as a result of. The rise in the oceans, displacing populations, which we see already in countries like Bangladesh, but it'll be even worse than that across a great part of Asia. So this is, this is what we are seeing in front of us now, and why we have to act soon. The way we've tried to describe this, and Diana used this phrase yesterday, and it is a great phrase, I think, the notion of planetary health. What we mean by planetary health is this idea of the health of human civilizations and the natural systems on which we depend. A couple of years ago, we published what we call a commission looking at the implications of thinking of health in terms of the health of civilizations. And we identified three challenges that we still haven't really addressed to this day. The first challenge is actually a challenge of our imagination. What is it to think about prosperity in the future? We've had a debate this week around the budget and whether productivity growth, economic growth is high enough or low enough. Is that really the way we are going to capture this idea of prosperity on our planet? Or do we want to have a different set of measures, metrics, ideas around how we want our future to be judged and governed? We haven't seriously, seriously begun that debate as yet. We also have a challenge of knowledge. The way we organize our knowledge, our universities, our faculties, our departments, even our journals, the way we have a dialogue together is incredibly siloed. The 17 sustainable development goals, I've got my goal, it's goal number three, ensure healthy lives. I want to keep everybody out. This is my goal, my community, my WHO, my UNICEF. We were fighting for our own goal in global health, worried we might not get it. And now I've got it, I'm going to put a wall around it and protect it. And much of the global health community is thinking like that, not thinking about how we can make connections between health and law and peace and justice and gender and education and poverty. So how we create knowledge in the future has to change. And the third challenge is action, because we're really good, so good at talking and writing, but we're not so good at acting. You're here. You spent a weekend here. That's an act. So we can join together, and then when we leave, what do we do about it? What are we going to do about it? Because time's short. Cristiana Figueras was the woman who... Navigated, shepherded nations to come to an agreement on climate in Paris in 2015. Cristiana Figueras, in thinking about America dropping out of Paris, has a very nice way of describing that. And it's a very optimistic way of describing it. She says there are 194 cars on a motorway. And they're all going at 100 miles an hour. And one car pulls over onto the hard shoulder and stops. But the other 193 cars, countries, continue down that motorway. And that's the way we should think of America's decision. America's a big country, but it's only one country. And everybody else is working to deliver Paris. And she set up a new movement around a goal of achieving change by 2020. Her argument is, if we don't make the policy decisions by 2020, it's not too late, but it's going to be a lot more painful in the future if we don't get a grip on those decisions. What are those decisions? We have to end the use of coal by 2030. We have to end the use of oil by 2040. And by 2050, we have to have no carbon in our economy at all. And if we do that, we might still be able to achieve a growth in temperature by no more than 1.52 degrees by the end of this century, as set out by Paris. We also have to think about how we make extraordinary coalitions. I'm not a Catholic, but I'm damn close. Why? Because if you read Pope Francis's first encyclical I can't I'm not going to ask you whether you have because I can't see how many I can't even see you out there so uh, I won't be able to see your hands go up but if you haven't please read it please go and buy it and please read it Laudato Si it is a wonderfully inspiring book it's a short book you can read it on one sitting in an afternoon he sets out the science of climate change and why we as a human family in this world should work together to change the trajectory that we are currently taking to address climate change. In fact, I've been so inspired by Pope Francis's encyclical. I've gone to the Vatican. Um, we're going to launch a commission with the Vatican on the value of life. I don't think the Lancet's ever had a Lancet, Vatican, Vatican, Lancet commission on anything. Um, but we have to think about ways of building extraordinary coalitions with those that we might not normally build coalitions with if we really are serious about making these kinds of changes. Or perhaps you want to come at it from a different point of view. Biodiversity. It's becoming increasingly clear that our health doesn't depend upon the health system only that we create. It depends upon the ecosystems that include all other species. That idea that our health depends upon the entire biosphere is exceptionally important in rethinking our attitude to protecting biodiversity. And that's why E.O. Wilson has launched a movement called the Half-Earth Movement. The Half-Earth Movement is that if we can protect half of the land of this planet, conserve that land, then we will be able to protect 85%, because there's a power relation between the land protected and the species protected, we will be able to protect 85% of the species on our planet. And if we do that, it's not only good for those species, but it's also good for us. It will help protect and strengthen the opportunity for our health. The half-earth movement. Join it. So what actions beyond that might we take? I think we have to rethink this idea of what sustainability might mean to us. I'm a Passionate supporter of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, but those goals don't really tell us what sustainability is as an idea. Sustainab- sustainability is the idea that our future depends upon all of us, not just a few of us. It's about the radical interdependence that we have with one another across our entire planet. It's not only about our health. It's about the health of those in the future. We are rightly concerned about fairness in our societies today, the idea of equity. But we should also be concerned about the fairness of societies in the future, intergenerational equity, and what decisions we make today that will affect generations in the future. It's not only about our species, it is about the connection between our species and all other species on the planet. It's not even only about life. It's also about the connection between natural systems and the physical systems on our planet. So there are layers within this idea of sustainability that we might reflect on, which means that when we think about how we change. Perhaps we need to think about the meaning of the word, we. When we say, we will do this, we will act in this way, we will think about what we do, our behavior, how we construct our economic, our political world around us, we need to extend the notion, perhaps, of the meaning of we. We isn't just about us in this theater, us in this city, Us in this country, it is about a much bigger we than that. And how do we make that we come alive to us? And perhaps that brings us back, in a rather long, circuitous way, to the meaning of health and the meaning of well-being. A couple of years ago, our chief medical officer, who's done a lot of good, published a report saying that there was no such thing as well-being. Well, I'd like to respectfully and politely disagree with her. I think well-being is an extremely powerful concept in our society if we understand what it might mean. Well-being isn't the happiness agenda that we, I think, mentioned yesterday. Well-being is a much more complex idea than that. It's about looking back in our lives and thinking about the satisfaction we have about what we have done, achieved, failed at, made mistakes in, and coming to some judgment, appraisal, reflection about that satisfaction. But even more than that, even more than that, it is about thinking of our future, the idea of the purpose of our lives, the meaning of our lives, how we adduce that meaning and purpose, and channel it into the way we act, what we believe in, what we do together as a community. Those are the elements that I think matter in the notion of well-being. And so when we think about what is it that we can do in this vast, 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 world with these forces shaping our future that seem impossible to address. We begin with ourselves and think about what is our purpose, our meaning. What purpose and meaning do we give to our life? Because if we can discover that meaning and purpose, translate it into our beliefs, into our actions, into the way we are with one another, then we have the prospect of winning a prize that will ensure that our future is sustainable, that our children's and their children's generations will be safe, and that our civilization can continue to flourish and thrive. Thank you so much for listening to me.